Today, let's ask the question, what is the biblical model for marriage? What did it look like in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and what does it mean for Christians today? Today, I'm having a conversation with one of my best and oldest friends, Savannah. Not oldest, like she's old, but we've known each other for a super long time. And I love her so much, and I'm so excited. She was on my podcast today. And we were talking about this biblical model for marriage. What does the Bible give us as far as marriage goes? Like, what should it look like? Why should you be getting married? There's a lot of cultural influences, especially in the Old Testament, about marriage. And we're just asking the question, does that apply to Christians today? Um, we share just our brief experiences being married. Savannah, a few years more than me, and she's entered motherhood, but we haven't been married that long each, but we have experienced a lot of the things that can hurt marriages. Like we share experiences with being selfish or um, with trusting our spouses with their humility and just kind of some things that have really helped us as newlyweds or people who have been only married for a little bit entering parenthood. What things helped us in our Christian community? What do the models for Christian families in the Old Testament give us today and for the Christian body today and how we can uplift one another? So here's our conversation. Hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? I am so good today. Tell everybody who you are. Who is Savannah Osredkar? Yeah, I am Savannah Osredkar. I, as you said earlier when we were talking, is my mom and a pastor's wife. Um, but I'm also that weirdo who just, I, I don't know. I do weird things when I'm by myself. I dance and sing and <laughs> now I have a baby. So I have an excuse to do it in public and people don't think I'm weird. So that's great. <laughs> but, and she is the- but I've known you forever. Yeah, we've, how long have we been friends now? I mean, when did we meet? Like nine? 2005? Yeah, nine. Yeah. A while. <laughs> it's been a it is a lot. In a minute. Yeah. Yep. So we have. I was like 15 years, but I feel like we already hit the 15 year mark, and that's because we're like 17. Yeah. 17. That's crazy that, that we can be like 17 years ago, we were nine. I kind of hate it. I don't like that. That makes me <laughs> so sad. I think you were the one who told me like high school musical aired. I don't know. It was like, oh yeah. 20 years? No, it must be like 15 years ago. Yeah, I think it was 15, maybe. 12 or 15 or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's so sad. It's a lot. That hurts. But on that note, <laughs> today we're talking about what in the world is the model for biblical marriage? The Old Testament model, mostly the Old Testament. Like, what does the Old Testament give us about marriage? But also, like, from the literal beginning of time, what was the intention for marriage? And then some of the New Testament things. And then should we be following that today or is it kind of all way back way back in the past so yep. i feel like you told me this morning that you're um premarital counseling with your husband which i feel like makes you a good like <laughs> some expertise yeah it, it's super weird like i don't i don't feel old enough to do it and it's i mean it's weird because like i'm still in my 20s this couple might be 19 or 20. I think there might be other 20s, at least 20. And so it's like, we're like also friends with them. So it's like, I don't feel old enough to do this with you guys, <laughs> but I don't feel old enough to do this in general. I've almost been married six, how, seven years, six, six or seven, six years. I've almost been married six years. Yes. 
And so it's like, that's still not anything in reality is what it feels like, but more than they have, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, more than me, because I'm on almost two. So you've got a, a few years on me at least. Plus you have the perspective of you're a wife now with a daughter. So I feel like that, I mean, a, a baby, but you still have like the mother yeah. aspect. So yeah, it's another layer of like, I don't know how it was your eyes through marital counseling, but it was like, here are the things that are like the main stressors of marriage. Mm-hmm. Children's one of those. Yeah. <laughs> and it's one of those things where you're like, I think we agree on everything. Like in the beginning, you're like, we agree everything. It's fine. And then <laughs> you don't. Yeah. You agree on most things. And that's what's important. The important things. And the other things you say, oh, it's okay. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, we were together so long before we got married. But it's weird when you're together that long and you don't live with each other. Like, mm-hmm. there, there still are things that you would think you know everything about each other. But then you get married and you actually live in the same house. And you, like, it, it just is so different than you would think it would be. Even with all that time yeah. spent together. There's just things that you're like, whoa, wait. <laughs> that's how you brush your teeth wow or just For real. stuff yeah. plus I feel like you can do the best that you can to counsel someone for marriage but you just can't cover everything there's just no way no and like there's things that yeah we both probably um like with parenting for example like we probably like 99% agreed on stuff beforehand and then now we have a kid and it's like depending on the situation and how stressed I am I'm going to cave and turn the tv on like or whatever, <laughs> and, or maybe I don't want you to turn the TV on, and that's what he wants to do, to turn the TV on, to, to like, relax her, and stuff, so it's, like, it's totally, I mean, yeah, it's helpful, and you should be able to have those open conversations, and maybe that's more of what it is, as a practice of having those conversations, than anything, but, it's yeah, there's always gonna be like, something. You always think, growing up, or at least I did, that you get married, and it's, like, we're on the same page of everything, <laughs> politics, and, yeah. And parenting. And then you're like, and then it's like, maybe. Yeah, we're <laughs> actually two still distinct people, I guess. Yes. Yes. Oh, man. So I guess when we're looking at Old Testament marriage specifically, not that that's distinctly different in a lot of ways, but just the beginning of time, we have, there's so many cultural elements that play into the society of like super patriarchal society, which yeah. I know that that's a word that is thrown around all the time now because a lot of people hear patriarchal and they think super inherently, inherently negative things about it. Mm-hmm. Patriarchal must mean that women are subordinates and men are just like running the whole show, which I think there's some interesting things that we'll kind of observe as we talk about this because I think patriarchal means something so different in that space of like Old Testament, ancient Israel specifically, but just ancient culture and ancient society, because it's so much different than ours today, that I feel mm-hmm. like it comes with a lot more responsibility. It's not just like, hey, we're men and we're here to run the show. It was like, there was so much responsibility that came with it. Yes. I think is so different than, than now. So we'll kind of see that as we go through these things. But just as a, uh, trying to think of the word, just as kind of an explanation for what it actually means, what patriarchy is, is it's just a system or society, or even it could be a governmental system where the father or the eldest male, so if the father dies, a brother or uncle, somebody who's the oldest male in the family um, is pretty much the authority. And then he is 
the one through whom his lineage is traced. So it's basically through the patriarchs of the family that all the lineage is traced through history, which we see in the Bible a lot of times. Matthew's genealogy gives us women and a lot uh, different. There's some strange things about the genealogy that Matthew gives us in the gospel, but for the most part, we see that throughout scripture. And ancient Israel was also patrilocal, which means that all these patterns of marriage for a couple were to live where the, the husband's family was from. So the husband's father or the patriarch of that family was from. So it wasn't at all like marriage that we have today, which we're going to get into more, but it was like, you're starting a family, but it's a part of this bigger family and it's a part of this tribe and this nation and, and all of these different things. So a lot bigger picture. And I think it's a lot different for us to understand too, because family was everything to people. Yeah. In culture and society, like not just emotionally, but your source of economic structure, your financial stability, your mm -hmm. how hopeful you could be for the future based on your descendants. Like there was so much more to it than, yeah. than our modern understanding. There's this great, um, I think she's an Old Testament historian. I guess I shouldn't know what she is if I'm going to reference her, but Dr. Sandra Richter, I've listened to a few of her lectures and she has a lot of really good material on understanding ancient Hebrew culture and the Old Testament. And she has she just did a talk at the Theology in the Raw conference, and she was talking about the subject of, is the God of the Old Testament cruel? Is he specifically cruel to women? And she did a super good job of, like, laying this all out. But she was talking about how, you know, the petrolocal, patrilineal, uh, patriarchal societies, and she had this chart, and it was kind of like a, kind of like a bullseye, and it was like circles, and they were, um, like, from the inmost to the outmost, to kind of understand yeah. family units and understand specifically ancient Israel marriage and things like that. And so the center, she had the patriarch, which was like the oldest living male. And then that would be Bet'ab, which in Hebrew, it means the father's house. And that was where everybody came. And it wasn't just like house. It was like kind of meant home to people. It was like, this is where my family is. And then outside of that would be, um, well, in, inside the, the Bet'ab, the father's house would be like his unwed children, his wife, if he had sons, it would be his sons and their wives if they get married. So we see again, like wives coming to live with their husbands. And that's kind of like the central family unit. And then there would be other family outside of that. So kind of extended relatives. And then outside of that, your tribe. So like Israel and Judah, there were a lot mm -hmm. of tribes. And then the nation of Israel. So very, very central to family. And then yes. she gave this quote, which I wrote down, which was, the patriarch was responsible for the economic well-being of his family, past, present, and future. He also had moral responsibilities to uphold the law and ethics of his family. And then she kind of went on to explain that the kinship network was also responsible for creating economic opportunity for the family, upholding the law that God had given in his family, and in caring for the marginalized. And there's a lot in the Old Testament about caring for the oppressed, especially within your family. So yes. I think that shows us it's so different than just like men running a company, you know, like mm -hmm. that's what we think of when we think patriarchal, but this was like, if you're going to be the leader of your family, you are super responsible for every part of this. You have so, so much, much pressure. Yeah. Pressure and pretty, not that everybody relies on you, but kind of in a way, like you're kind of holding yeah. it all together. So it's not just, you get this unwarranted power. It's like almost in a sense that you have to earn it. If you're going to run the show. Yeah. 
which I think would be probably not in the exact same way, but maybe a good model for us to follow. And not just not just saying like men should rule and they should be responsible yes. for all these things, but in leadership, like if you're gonna lead this group or this family, then you have a lot in your hands to take care of that you're responsible for. Yes. Um, so that's all really relevant when we talk about marriage because in the Old Testament and in ancient society, marriage was about linking to families. So it wasn't like, hey, we met and it's super romantic and we have chemistry. So now we're <laughs> married. So it was like, we need financial stability. We're creating an alliance, especially within like royal families. It was for power yes. and resources. And so patriarchs and their wives, but mostly patriarchs were the ones who sorted out marriage for people. So they would find someone suitable for their child or someone who would make a proposal for them, for their daughter. And so they were the ones who were kind of running the show in that way. And they were also responsible for making sure that their children were taken care of within those marriages. So specifically their daughters and brothers as well had that responsibility to make sure that their sisters were being taken care of and to make sure if my family member is being oppressed in this situation, then it's my responsibility to advocate for them, make sure their best interests are taken care of, mm -hmm. that whole thing. So that I think is pretty significant when we look at a lot of Old Testament laws, especially that seems super weird to us. And I think yeah. seem really sexist mm -hmm. because, and not that I'm trying to pretend like I understand them all because I still am like, what even is this? But yeah. I think that that helps us get at least a little bit of understanding for this is why it seems so bizarre. Plus we're trying to understand society four to 6,000 years ago, which yes. comes with its own struggles. Yeah. Um, and then I promise I'll stop talking in a second. Nope, you're fine. <laughs> here. But um, it's interesting because in scripture, right after Eden, so right after Adam and Eve, they sin, they're cast out of the garden, all of that. And before there were kind of these customs and laws, marriage was basically like a two-step process. So you would ask someone to marry you and then you would just consummate the relationship. We see that in Genesis 4, 17 with Adam and Eve's children. So it wasn't as much of a process as we see later in scripture and in kind of ancient Jewish culture, which was mm -hmm. marriage that took place in stages. So there was a gift given to the patriarch and sometimes a fee was paid or um, something was given to the bride. And then there was a period of engagement. And basically, once you got engaged, you agreed to the marriage, then you were betrothed, which was like, we're married, but we're not, we haven't completed all the steps. So if you cheated on your fiance in that period, you were committing adultery. Yes. So it was like, basically, we're married, but not yet. And then there was a contract, and then you consummated the relationship. We, the good example of that in the Old Testament is Genesis 24, Isaac and Rebecca, this whole process that happens. And again, very different than what we think when we think, hey, we got yeah. engaged and now we're getting married. Yes. Um, and we see that with Mary and Joseph, like they're betrothed. And so people would think it would be really not great if your fiance was pregnant and you're technically married mm -hmm. and you haven't consummated the relationship and all that. So all of that being said, <laughs> that sets us up <laughs> to look at what does the Old Testament give us? on marriage. And so uh, I think the first thought that we're going to talk about is that same idea that 
we're so far culturally removed that it's hard for us to get this. But as we look mm -hmm. through the, the laws and the guidelines that God has given and given through the law, it's actually really protective of women, really protective of consent for both people, looking out for people's safety, their dignity, their respect, which is especially yeah. in comparison to other Middle Eastern societies that were oh yeah, totally not like that, which were like, yep, it's legal to abuse your spouse or anyone. Rape is a woman's mm -hmm. fault, dehumanizing, all of that. What has been your experience kind of approaching Old Testament law, understanding it? I, I mean, when I was younger, I was one of those people who just kind of avoided it. Like, Same. there's so many weird things in this, like, that are just bizarre in the first place, but then things that are almost like, excuse me? And so I just kind of like, like, I'm not getting into that kind of thing. Um, and then fairly recently, actually, my husband and I have been like talking and like discussing things and just like, man, when you read this, you like, if you just come at it, just reading it and have no background or knowledge or anything of it, I understand why so many people are like, I don't want to worship that God. That's terrible. Um, and we actually, you recommended a book, um, God Behaving Badly which was one week. It's really good. I read it through my library and my husband ordered it and he's now waiting for it because he really wants to read it and is really excited about it, but I don't know if he's gotten it yet. Um, but just reading through that and just really like describing how, like when you look at those things in a historical context of how other, um, like you mentioned, other societies were operating and uh, civilizations, how they handled laws and rules and expectations and like how uh, liberal or progressive the Bible actually, God's laws were at that time. Um, and knowing, like there's a, there's a lot of things where I knew like, okay, this is for cleanliness reasons or this is for that. And I knew that, but there's other things in there that you're just like, excuse me, <laughs> just um, like, sometimes when you talk about divorce and it's like oh he can divorce her but she can't divorce him and stuff like that and you're like what <laughs> that's not okay but there's way more to that than just yes or no for him but yeah that I think I imagine that it will probably take like the rest of our lives trying to understand it to really grasp all of that but it is yes weird and I did the same thing and even like four years ago three or four years ago I was working on a lot of the curriculum for the Real Truth Ministries and trying mm -hmm. to just make a good case for why Christians should care about sexual abuse and what the Bible gives us and I really just picked like one verse out of Deuteronomy and I was like I don't understand like, I don't even want to touch the rest of this because it seems like when you just, when you don't have an understanding for God and his character, which I think also the Old Testament law sets us up to understand is like, in every way, God is holy. But mm -hmm. when you don't understand his goodness and his kindness and all those parts of him, then it just seems like this is beyond cruel. And it's so, so unusual. And you're yes. like, did this, some of these things, did this happen enough? You had to write it down in the law. But <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it takes a lot of time to dig into. Uh, you have to understand the cultural the, the cultural impacts of what it's saying, but also 
what a difference that it's making in this ancient world where there was no dignity and respect for most mm -hmm. people, but especially women and especially children and how different yeah. and actually really loving and caring the Bible was. But it, it really doesn't seem like that at first glance. I just finished this. It was 24 lectures by, to my best knowledge, she's an atheist professor, which was really fascinating, hmm. but it was like about historical Israel and basically the anthropology, like what day-to-day -day life would have been like, but she wasn't a Christian. So she was, she had really significant understanding of the law, but she didn't understand things like the Trinity. So she was like, it was, she was saying, it's so hypocritical that ancient Israel was condemning all these other nations for polytheism because they have three gods. And like, she really didn't oh, yeah. get it. So even to her, she was like, yeah, I guess this is kind of dignifying for women, but it just seems like, you know, just because she didn't have like biblical interpretation, she was like, but this is still pretty out there. <laughs> yeah. So um, having that is good as we start, because like we said, some of these things that sound pretty bizarre, <laughs> having a good kind of base level understanding, even if we're like, we don't know what this means, kind of trusting God and trusting his character in these yeah. um, different bizarre scenarios. But we're going to kind of go through what does the Old Testament give us on marriage as far as like, what is the model? What is it supposed to look like based on the text flat out telling us, based on the law, based on different scenarios that we see? Mm -hmm. um, so this is just like the most basic, basic understanding I think that we could make probably, which would be like uniting two humans. Today, we're not at all getting into the debate of like side A or side B Christianity. So I'm just saying... According to a biblical traditional sexual ethic, then they would be a man and a woman, and they create a new family together. This is very family-centric. They're making a new family that we see literally and figuratively. They're becoming one flesh, so they, through consummating their relationship through sex, which is also really symbolic because they're joining their whole, their lives together, their families together, their, you know, outer families together, and it's a covenant and a contract, and so... Uh, Genesis 1 through 3 give us a pretty good beginning to kind of getting this idea of marriage because it's the creation of man and creation of woman. And so if you want to go and dig into that, it's Genesis 2, 19 through 25, where God finishes creating the animals and then Adam needs a wife because he's lonely and it's not good for him to be alone. And so um, I'm going to jump down to, let's see, Verse 22, then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame, which I think is like every woman's favorite verse when they're like, he leaves his father and mother. They Hallelujah. on their own. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> so good but that's totally not how their society operated yeah isn't that interesting too that it's, that's what I was just the whole time thinking like but this is not right Wait, it's like sorry. I was thinking about that as well like it's almost this weird like figurative not figurative but like spiritual element of it I think. yeah I would love yeah, to ask somebody absolutely. like you're not actually you probably still live in the same house or like maybe if you look at ancient Israel, like homes, like compound kind of situation, but you're, you are, as we'll see, like New Testament, especially like you are submitting to one another. You're not submitting to your parents. Like there's so many spiritual elements to that. 
Yes, still we're saying hallelujah. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for including that. So in the original text in Hebrew, the word that's used for it, um, we didn't read that part, but he mm-hmm. took, uh, oh, we did. He took, uh, like, it says usually the rib out of the man, but it actually means side. It's the word hasala. So it's not literally a rib, but he took out of the side of Adam and made a woman. And so I feel like that actually gives us a lot of context that Eve was taken from his side, even if it's not literally his rib. Yes. It shows us that Adam needed a companion. He wasn't complete without a woman. And then we see that word ezer, which most Bibles translate into English as helper. Um, It's interesting because it's only used twice in Genesis to speak of Eve and then 19 more times in different variations to talk about God's help. Um, like, I'm not even going to try to read the Hebrew. I was going to try, but I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> to offend anybody more than I already am today. But in Exodus 18.4, it's used um, to refer to God. The God of my father was my helper and he delivered me. And then in Deuteronomy 33.29, how happy are you, Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. He's the shield that protects you, the sword that you boast in. And then Psalm 33, 20, we wait for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, which I like to look at the other context because I think, and you can tell me your, your personal opinion or like kind of experience with this, but it seems like when I hear people talk about Ezra, even when they're trying to dignify it, sometimes they're like, don't worry, you're still important. Like you're a helper, but yeah. you know, we need a helper. Yeah. Yeah, it's it like a demeaning a little. Yes, yeah, yeah. Like it absolutely does, and it's it's kind of like a here's a consolation prize. Yeah, <laughs> is what it feels like, and it's like, excuse me. Yeah, <laughs> no, and it's like, oh, but you know, they use that for God, and it, that is true, and that is good. But it's like we got to step back and figure out why we're even needing to feel like we have to give a consolation prize when we're talking about our position as a person in a relationship that God ordained um, instead of just like a, hey, you know, this is how it is and that's great viewpoint. Right. And I think even in the most super conservative view of marriage that you have, if you're extremely fundamentalist, complementarian, all the way 100 I still, like, like you just said, I love that you said that, like, God ordained this union. <laughs> he created two people in his image equally. Like, he took her from his side, not his foot. Like, they're together. Yes. They're side by side. So we don't have to be like, you know what, honey, it's fine. You're a helper. Like, that has meaning. And also, we see more than it's used for woman. That word is used uh, in different words to talk about God and how he helps Israel and is their deliverer. And mm-hmm. um, that has a lot of weight to it. Yes. And then uh, we already looked at 23 through 25. This is the bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Mm-hmm. So I think that also gives us a pretty good baseline to say these two, whatever you believe about headship or um, submitting to one another or your interpretation of that, like Imago Day goes for both people. They're also equals and they're made of the same thing and yes um and I think even in really both side a and side b Christian so we're talking about like if you believe marriage is only between a man and a woman or if you advocate for same-sex marriage I would I think at least from the arguments that I've heard both of those parties would say 
it still is about complementing one another. I have a biblical traditional sexual ethic in that way that, um, but I, I think it's clear on, in any context that you look at it, it's about complementing one another. So not just the woman is complementing the man, but they both yes. complement each other and work together and they work <laughs> for one another. Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of times that comes off that it's just like, um, like you help him so much, you do so much for him. And it's like, but what about me? What does he do for me? Kind of thing. Like, not to make it sound selfish or anything like that, but there's just more to it than what I provide for him um, and how I can make him more effective and stuff like that and how I can help him grow closer to God. It's also the vice versa and how he does those things. Um, for me as a woman married to him, like, that's not too weird. <laughs> but um, <laughs> just as his wife, like, there's, he's helping me grow and helping me thrive in my areas of life as well that he may not be necessarily involved in, but he's still helping me thrive in those areas. Mm, yeah. And yeah, I think it just really does seem like that when we talk about marriage, that it's like, all about how you can help that person. But when we look at that whole model of patriarchy and everything, it totally was not just about find a wife and she'll do everything for you. It, there was so much more to both sides of the relationship that were like really not just even a husband and wife, but the whole family unit working together for yes. the good of the community or their like immediate family, which yeah. we just don't have good context, I don't think, to understand today. Okay, so we're gonna go through a list of some other things a little more quickly because there's not a ton here, but there's a lot of Deuteronomical references. Deuteronomical, I don't know if that's a word, but there's a lot of references <laughs> to the law here. So the law gives a lot of weird, <laughs> there's some weird stuff about polygamy, which I want, I'm actually planning to have a conversation with someone in the future. So I'm glad we're kind of laying the baseline for what in the world is even the marriage model. So we will get to those things eventually because there's a lot there. But the gist of that conversation will be polygamy isn't what God intended, but there was a lot that needed to be addressed because even though he didn't ordain it or permit it, it was happening. And so there needed to be laws in place to protect specifically women in these situations because there really weren't a lot of women marrying a lot of men. It was a lot of women marrying one man. Um, yes. Which I think Lamech was the first polygamist. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's Abraham. I don't know. Um, anyways, right. so the first uh, point seems kind of contradictory to that, but if you start digging into polygamy, I think that that will be kind of a, a something that you'll see a lot that this really isn't God in, God's intention. So I think the intention that we see is that sex is for the context of marriage only with your one spouse only. So the, we do see that throughout the different marriages of Abraham and his family, but in the law, we see that first in Deuteronomy 22, 13 through 22. And then along with that, don't have sex with people who aren't your spouse. So Leviticus 20, 11, Deuteronomy 22, 22. And then also consent, consent for sex is required. So a lot of these examples are of, uh, it's usually a unmarried, betrothed person, but we also see some other examples of someone who's not married, not betrothed. So Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 14, 22, 13 through 29. And then there's some really, <laughs> a lot of Leviticus is like, don't have sex with these 
things. But this particularly is about um, with your mom, with your aunt, niece, sister, sister-in-law, and don't marry them because sex was kind of like a part of ancient Jewish marriage. It was very symbolic for your marital status with someone. So Leviticus yeah. 18a, 11, 14 through 16 and 20, and then Leviticus 20, 11 through 14, verse 17, 19 through 21, Deuteronomy 22, 30. And then there's this weird exception, which is leveret marriage, which is like, if your husband dies, but he has a brother who's not married, he can choose to marry you, which also seems super weird <laughs> in our context. And yeah. uh, there was options to not make that happen. But the, the purpose for a woman would be like, hey, we're looking out for you because you kind of yes. need a man in this society to take care of you financially yes. and stand up for you and advocate for you. Then you have an option to have your brother-in-law step in and then he can provide children for you as part of this family line. Still super strange. But yes. other place we see that is Deuteronomy 27, 20, and uh, verse 22. So then we're going to look at just kind of what does the Bible in general, outside of the law and some of these examples of Abraham's family, what does it set up for us as far as the model of marriage? Um, so I'll start with, we can pretty much straight off the bat, there's not really a lot of, I don't, I've never heard anyone debate this, but marriage is good. It was a gift mm -hmm. that was given prior to the fall. God said it was good. Creation wasn't complete without marriage, without Adam having Eve. Adam needed a wife. It wasn't good for him to be alone. Um, and that also just gives us the same like monogamy, two people. And it's this never ending union. So unless somebody dies, this is in place permanently. Yes. So um, it's a binding agreement and a contract, which we understand today. I think we have a good understanding of that because our you have to go to the state to get your marriage license and it's it's similar mm -hmm. in modern world yes. in that aspect but it also is the spiritual union which we don't have a great context for today because i think in our world today marriage is pretty I, I, even in some circles of christianity we just don't have a good understanding of the spiritual aspects and maybe the biblical model in certain ways and so it's selfish in the sense of like, what can this give me? Mm -hmm. um, what can I get out of this? Which I, I want to be fair because I guess in the Old Testament, there would be a lot of that as well in ancient marriage because yeah. it was like, how can I be taken care of? How can I have my lineage passed on? And, and it was advantageous marriage. Yeah. So there was some of that as well, but I think it's different now because it's very like, I, I feel like the conversation right now is, is this good for my career? And if it's not, then maybe there's like reason for divorce or there's a lot mm -hmm. of exceptions that it seems like we make in the secular community of why, why yes. you have to be a money is a huge one or just feeling satisfied and like filled up. Mm -hmm. And that's um, always what someone else can do for you. It's not necessarily um, your own thing that you're trying to create for yourself as well as for someone else. Um, but yeah, a lot of times I feel like, at least in my experience of people that I know, it's always, almost always come down to money. Like, I want you to make more money so that you can do this for me, or I want you to make 
or I want to make more money and I want to do this and this. So you have to sacrifice in this way for me and um, an unwillingness to sacrifice in situations when they should and maybe an unwillingness to accept that you shouldn't be forcing someone else to sacrifice um, in those ways, whether it's time, money, all of those things um, definitely come into play with it. And I think um, we get that it's a contract, but there is not as much um, societal shame, maybe, is the way to say it in a divorce. Not that, not, I don't know if shame is the right word. But back then, if that happened, there was a lot of people watching that were like, whoa, kind of thing. And a lot of people, that were, yes, that were relying on it. And so, yeah, it was not acceptable. Um, whereas now it's, I mean, you can do it as simple as just signing a piece of paper and giving it to the government and you're fine or not fine, you're divorced. Um, and so I feel like I got derailed there. But, um, and what were we talking about before that? Okay, <laughs> 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 um, understanding of that, yeah. Divorce and the spiritual ties. Yes. It's, yeah, and the yeah. culture just saying things that are uh, very contrary, which was happening unfortunately in ancient society too it was really but it was really about men like hey, yeah you're not into this woman anymore you can give her the boot and she's out mm-hmm. and for most of ancient history didn't have that same option but right it seems like and I'm really not cool in the sense of like I know what's going on or I don't really watch a lot of like relevant television shows so I don't, I don't, I don't know if I know actually what's going on I watch Dr. Documentaries of my husband. It's pretty <laughs> exciting. <laughs> Same. I watched that and like Survivor, so I don't know what's going on. But um, it seems like there's this thing that's kind of taking over every rom com and TV show about women and romance, where it's like, if it's not good for my career, then I'm letting this go. And even though it will be hard, then I'm not going to invest in this. Or I've, I, mm-hmm. my sister watched a show where this. It was the same situation and like they were married, but then the woman wanted, she got a promotion and she had to move and he had to go to a different state. And it was like, well, this is just what we have to do because it's about me and my career. Yeah. I think that that has kind of stepped into Christian culture, but in a way that's not as obvious. There's Mm -hmm. a really good book by Timothy Keller called The Meaning of Marriage, which was, I uh, started reading before we got married and it was super helpful and super convicting for me to see a lot of the subtle ways that it seems less obvious where we're like no we're totally on the same page with careers and if you need to move I'll move with you but in a lot of spiritual ways in a lot of emotionally fulfilling ways we're just looking out for our own interests because we're that's mm-hmm. just kind of like the nature of humans is be selfish yeah. seek our own benefits and so it's hard when you, when you combine your life with someone, <laughs> it's like it totally switching that. I mean, we, sh- as believers, we should be caring about the interests of others more than ourselves, but we don't. And so it's very difficult when now your life is joined with someone else's forever. And you have to, if, if you don't do that, if you're not looking out for their interests in all of those different ways, then there's a bigger consequence that's a lot more obvious, I think. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's, it can be a very sneaky thing that comes in um, 
that, yeah, like you said, you probably don't even realize what you're doing is damaging potentially to your relationship, your marriage relationship, but it definitely can be. Right. And not like we're the experts on this because we've been married a handful of years. Come on. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, in our short experience, that's what we've noticed is selfishness yeah. is a really big part of this. And it um, yes. it's interesting too, that even the, the most secular sources will tell you that, like you said, finances are, I think, like the leading cause of divorce, if not Probably. the top three still, you know, that's a really big yeah. stressor on a marriage. Yeah. So yeah. saying I'm going to be married to you forever, despite our health status, our financial status, our career status. I mean, that's, that's a lot bigger commitment than I think a lot of us think even <laughs> into marriage. Like, wait, whoa. Well, and it's like a, there has to be like a mutual sense of humility. Mm-hmm. And if you have that humility, I, if I have my, if I can trust that my humble, my husband is humble, I can trust him with whatever because he's not, not going to choose to be that, uh, be selfish and stuff like that. That doesn't mean it doesn't still happen and sneak in, but is that a characteristic of him that I can trust? Then yes, <laughs> because if he's being humble, he's not likely to be like, whatever I want, that's what I get. We're doing this. We're moving here. We're doing that. We, you know, it's not like that if there's that there in my mind, which obviously are very biblical traits to have, <laughs> Yeah, but easily um, forgotten. <laughs> and this is also to be super clear, this is very specific to like marriages where we don't have abusive spouses. Like we have yes. very good husbands who, who do take yes. care of us. And the Old Testament does give some, I mean, not the Old Testament, the New Testament gives some kind of outlines of like living with a spouse who isn't doing their godly obligation to you. But that still I mm-hmm. think is a totally different page than having an abusive spouse where you need to physically get help or get out of that situation for your safety. And that yes. also is later conversation, but totally different than what we're talking about. It's not like yes. my spouse is abusing me, but I have to stay. This is total, this is like selfishness, selfishness and humility, humility, and a lot of those mm-hmm. spiritual and emotional things that we struggle with as humans. Yes. So the next thing is that was very different than our understanding and concept of marriage today. Like we talked about is that marriage was really about creating that alliance between the two families and having stability and having children, having descendants. And so women could work and they could make money, but the men were the advocates for them and the primary financial contributors. And so they needed someone, some kind of man to step in for them. And another theme that we see throughout the Old Testament is someone stepping in for them and being an advocate for them um, and a lot of law protecting them in those situations. But it you really did need a husband or a father or son or brother or someone to, to be in that place for you to make sure that you were being treated fairly and that you had a future that was set up for you and that you had some kind of economic stability as a person, which we don't really have that today because we're really fortunate to live in a society where in, I mean, at least in, in the United States of America, in our modern American culture, there's pretty much equality across the board. I know there's a lot of debate about um, women's pay and all, there's a, there's a whole conversation, whole conversation, but 
for the most part, if you're a single woman, you're going to be okay. You have yes. opportunity, but that wasn't uh, available to women in that day. And so and our government takes a, a role on that too, if need be. It's not like just like you, if you don't have a family, you're done. No, it's not. Yeah. 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 We have so many more opportunities to create a life if something doesn't work out in this situation. And also, and I, I think we just, because we don't have that family, I'm trying to think of the word, like family pattern, family model of mm -hmm. the, the patriarchal society and every patriarchal and all of that. We don't really think about caring for our family members in the same way. So it's, we're very independent in our finances and in, even within families, it's like you do your own thing, yes. you do your own thing, instead of like my son's my son died and his wife is alive and now it's our financial responsibility to create opportunity for her and make sure she's taken care of. Yes. And so I, I would, tell me your opinion too. I would say that we don't have to follow this model. Like we just won't in our modern Western society. This is not what we're going to do. But I think no. it gives us good values out of that. Like just caring for your family and mm -hmm caring for not just your family, but just people who are in situations where they're facing depression, they don't have an advocate, or they are just really down and out. They don't have someone to help them out emotionally, yes. physically, financially. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it definitely is a good reminder that like, like for me personally, I would not like always draw that connection. Um, but I agree that it's, it's totally true like once you pointed out and you're like okay yeah we really like my first thought is like okay like the there's space they can breathe they can be a married couple now <laughs> because in my mind I'm like how could you be a married couple in that situation um but taking care of all those people but also that was the way they did take care of people like you were saying and now we just kind of we don't even rely on Christians to take like fellow believers to take care of us we just rely on the you know like I said the government and and things like that just because it's not the norm to have just an everyday person walk up to you and want to help you and care for you and in some way and so but I, that's obvious like Jesus did that that's obviously like what God wants us to be doing and so that is a great example of that um in a way that's not how we operate now but we can take that from it and use that in our just daily lives yeah, and I think too, if we look at the Psalms and the Proverbs and a lot outside of the law, we can see too, if you're doing your job as leaders of a family or not just a patriarch, but a matriarch and mm -hmm. just a, a part of this unit, then caring for each other's spiritual needs would be a part of that as well, like making sure, and not just in a family context, because not everybody has like a family most people don't have a family model like this not not just I mean like living in the same house and and having all these responsibilities but even just now having like a traditional family in the way we would think of it in our modern understanding of family and so yeah whatever your family is caring for their needs spiritually like when we were getting married there were so many people that were asking us questions about I don't know like not interrogating us about why we were getting married, but just yes. before we even got engaged, like, are you sure you want to do this? And is this what you want? And if you're, if yeah. you get married, this is going to happen. And this is what you have to be prepared for. But besides my parents and maybe like 
you and one other friend, I'm talking about a lot of people that had talked to us about this. Nobody was like, hey, how's your marriage? What do you need prayer for? Like, are you guys okay? Are you, you know, it was like, hey, be warned. This is going to get crazy. But now we're out and we're not here for you in this yeah. crazy new phase of your life. And we were really fortunate. Or just talk about it super harshly and negatively. Exactly. Exactly. And they're like, hey, it's going to be terrible, but good luck. Ball and chain. Yep. <laughs> You're in for it now. Now you can't get out. But there, it was, it's impactful to have people that actually care about you and will walk through you, walk with you through the difficult times, especially at the beginning of a relationship when you are just on your own and you're trying to figure it out and there's, there's new yeah. things. And we were fortunate to have a great first year of marriage, but not that the second one has been bad. It's just, we've had a good experience, <laughs> yes. but they're still hard. The, life is just hard. Life is just hard. Yeah. And we need There's just aspects that come into it that you're like, Hey, I wouldn't have experienced this necessarily outside of marriage, maybe in some form, but not to this extent or in this way. And having people who can be like, one, you're going to make it through Two, it's going to be okay. And I'm here for you. I'm praying for you. And if you want advice, I have it. But if you don't, I'll just listen to you and like help understand. Not that I'm saying I also want to be careful because I think a lot of times it's really easy for people to when to go harp on their spouse. Like mm. we have a strict rule in our marriage. We do not talk negatively about our spouse to anyone else. Um, yes, there can be like, yeah, we're struggling in this area. We're disagreeing on this, but in a very, that's a healthy thing. It's not, in a like, just um like keeping it a secret or something yes yeah yeah and so I want to be careful I'm not saying that um have a person that you go to and complain about your spouse too but having that just one someone who understands or just listens is huge in a healthy way um like that yeah that's I think I don't want to make like just major broad generalizations but I think that especially in just this, our world is just in a million ways so wild right now. And just people are so anxious and stressed more than ever before. And so I think it would just be a help. Not that like it'll fix all of our marriages, but I think yes. it would just a help if we had some kind of spiritual community for one another. Yes. And that, to me, that goes in general with like everything in life, having someone who you can talk to about the spiritual aspects and stuff that occur in everything because for so long we just like nope there's nothing wrong not that like I mean that's kind of a previous generation thing that our generation seems to be kind of working out but just the idea that like if there's something wrong we don't tell anyone because if they know they're gonna judge us or whatever and just being more open and talking about things and having someone you can go to and talk to comfortably is not common but very important I think for just functioning in life if you ask me <laughs> I need someone to bet to sometimes or to encourage me or give advice or just be like hey I'm with you and be with me there in that moment um and to be like, honest with I think in this in which I mean you should be able to be totally honest with your spouse but having someone to yes. help you if you're like even if it's like uh, my spouse has done nothing wrong, but I'm frustrated with them. <laughs> I'm just like so angry at them. I had a dream. <laughs> to have somebody that you can, especially in like a really cancel culture world where you're just afraid to get help or ask 
people in the spiritual community or just like be honest about like, I have a question about marriage and I'm afraid to ask because I'm going to sound like an idiot or I don't know theology if I ask it, but just being mm -hmm. able to freely with another person you trust is also very helpful and very comforting. Yes. yes. All right. The next thing on the list I have is obviously sex is a very integral part of marriage. And so Old Testament wise, I think Song of Solomon gives us a really very countercultural picture of <laughs> sex, not just being for childbearing and also not just yes. being for men's gratification. Like what men can just use a woman whenever he wants and for his own sexual benefits and then yes. he wants to get rid of her or divorce her or, you know, especially when we look at legalized rape in ancient cultures, it's, it's very, very concerning. And so to have not just the law, but have something like this where we see spouses who are, it, sex isn't just for childbearing, it's for procreation mm -hmm. and for pleasure, and they're loving one another, they're serving each other, they're enjoying each other in the sexual relationship within marriage, and so I think that that is a very positive thing to see, and then also yeah. informs us a lot about marriage, and I think even it really concerns me and really bothers me a lot of the things that I see in Christian culture today in books from popular Christian teachers mm -hmm. are still kind of promoting the idea that sex is primarily for the gratification of husbands or that yeah. it's not this mutually loving thing. And that's, I mean, especially in a world where we're really now aware, hopefully everyone's more aware of consent mm -hmm. and the signs of sexual abuse and that that's not biblical. It's not biblically ordained and it's not pleasing to God. It's very displeasing no. to God, which he specifically says. But I think we really need to look at the overarching picture of the entire Bible to understand, especially sex within marriage um, and this whole idea of mutual respect and mutual consent. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it is. It's it's such a, it's a hard and confusing thing because I know like you've had the purity culture conversation and stuff like that and all of those things that just go into it that, um, that's just, I don't know, it's such a taboo no, no thing. And I'm like, the Bible's got a whole book on it. <laughs> Could it be that taboo to talk about it and, and have some level of uh, conversation on it? Because we've made our society has made it our christian society i should say um has made it such a taboo thing that um it's harmful and dangerous <laughs> at that point um in marriages and the way that um sex is supposed to be in a marriage and um how it does so much good in a marriage when it's healthy and so much good for a relationship and bringing closeness and um unity like I mean, that is one of, like, the main things, like you said, in Israel uh, back then that was part of their, like, the steps of their marriage. Like, in the beginning for a while, it was just, like, two steps, and that was one of them, and how important it is, and we just, we see, it's easy to just see the physical side of it and just kind of be like, mm. but there's so much more to it than just that. Definitely, and I think that it also helps us understand that there isn't just, it's like you said, it's not just about the physical in the sense that consent 
I mean, sex isn't just about two consenting adults, which we see Mm -hmm. prominently in our culture today. And I, oh, I wish I knew the author of the article. Someone just wrote a whole article. I think it was for like the New York Times or something like a really big publishing, Hmm. um, a publisher who that's what the whole article was about. Like, are we missing something here? And she wasn't a Christian, but she was like, it seems like there's something more here. It's not just about like, you meet someone and you both say yes. So you have sex and it's fine. And then you leave and you never see each other. But there's some, like, there's so many spiritual elements. And if we abuse that and misuse that, then there's really significant consequences. Like you were saying, like, enjoying that in this context that God intended is super beneficial for your marriage. But also on Mm -hmm. the, the counterpart of that is misusing it is also super destructive to your marriage and also to your spouse. Yes. Yeah. Seriously. Absolutely. Another place that we see kind of the enjoyment side of marriage is Proverbs 5. It does, uh, the first part of it addresses adultery, which we'll look at some more references to adultery in a minute, but also just enjoying marriage. That It's not just like, like you said, the ball and chain, here we are forever. This is it. Yeah. But also that even though it wasn't in that ancient setting, like we're getting married because we met and we're super in love and that's the primary reason that we're combining our lives, but it still can be enjoyable and loving and maybe even not in a super romantic context, but there is other kinds of love. And so that's also a yeah. thing. I especially think of like in that um, way, like, I mean, there wasn't, like you said, there wasn't the romance and the chemistry that wasn't like the way that their marriages came about and thinking about that now, like, Okay, sex was had to have been really important for starting that, probably, in a sense, because that is, to me, that is an important thing in a marriage a lot of times. Um, and so, like, that had to have been um, a very important aspect of starting that because there wasn't that built up period of time of dating or courting or whatever you want to call it. For the most part, it was just here and okay, let's go. You know, like they probably knew each other or whatever, maybe, maybe not. I'm sure there's so many different situations that happened back there because there are people and that's what happens. But on the whole, I'm sure it was very important um, for that in the relationship. Yeah. Even that story of, I mean, there are some places and even like Song Solomon's like, they're definitely, there's love, definitely romantic love, but like Jacob and Rachel, um, mm-hmm. you know, he super loved her or at least, at least it's, I think the text says that he loved her. It wasn't just that he thought he did. Like he really genuinely loved this person, but yes. like Isaac and Rebecca, it was like, there was this process, like we're giving a gift and we're meeting the family, but then it was like, they meet and they're like, okay, let's consummate the relationship. That would have been, that would have been pretty crazy. And I guess yeah, when that's what your culture is used to, maybe it wasn't as much so, but yeah, that would have yeah. been pretty wild. And it, yeah, I think that that is a really good thing. I've never thought of that. Um, yeah just I mean traditional families today often are created they're waiting till marriage to have sex and so that is like you've known the person for however long and you're choosing this person and that's awkward okay right <laughs> most wedding nights aren't like if, if that's your first time it's not as like glamorous <laughs> as we want to pretend it is and so like I can't imagine how much more weird that would feel like I don't know 
let's go to your and also he went to his mother's tent which is very his dead mother which is like oh boy that's a whole nother thing that's oh, such a romantic location <laughs> not like that today but uh along with that we with sex not just for uh procreation it is for pleasure but then also it is for procreation so for childbearing for having kids and also filling the earth um making descendants was a command that was given before the fall so it's not like people were cursed and they're like okay i have kids now <laughs> like that was yes. prior to the fall. so yes. that's good context to have and like we've just been reiterating this whole marriage system in this context in the ancient world was creating a family and so really the only way to receive children was in that context even if your spouse had children prior to you marrying them like a lot of people think that Joseph Jesus's adopted father maybe was married before he met Mary um and he had children from a previous marriage but still they wouldn't be her children until they were married like they're that was the only yes. way to, to get children unless mm -hmm. you were outside of that context and so and, and outside of the law in that way um yeah, yeah so that was a, I mean if we had to narrow it down to like the top two or three things that was probably <laughs> at least number two on the yes. list of why we're getting married. And uh, in Matthew 22, 30 and Mark 12, 25, and also uh, Luke 20, 34 through 35, Jesus talks about how there won't be marriage in heaven. Well, not heaven. He says the resurrection. I should clarify that. That is yes. something different, I think. Um, or There's a lot more to that. And so uh, the Bible Project has a great like, I think it's the first season or 10 first episodes of their podcast where they, and probably some videos, I haven't watched those, but about what the resurrection will be like and this overarching picture of the Bible of, it's not just about like, we don't go to hell, but it's about heaven and earth coming back together and the way that God intended and all these things. And so he made this connection that I hadn't ever thought about before, but maybe the part of the reason why we won't have marriage in the resurrection is because we don't need to reproduce in heaven, which I thought was really interesting because I had never thought of that before. I agree. I've never heard that either. Like, because that's something that people like, that's like one of the first things they talk about when they talk about heaven. And to me, I'm like, why? Like, that's weird to me. I don't understand why. Yeah, but at that point, I was like, okay, that, oh. <laughs> it's like, okay, that makes so much more sense to me. Like, that sounds like a legitimate reason. Whereas everything else I've heard is just whatever. And I'm like, this yeah. doesn't make sense to me. Because a lot of people, I've, I know a lot of people will say heaven will be like the earth was before the fall. I'm like, but there was a marriage there. <laughs> right. so I've always like struggled like how, I mean, just because we've recently in our church and in our area and groups we're in, have recently been talking about heaven a lot. And I'm always just like, so like, because we want to understand it. Yeah. But there's not a ton to understand oh, overall. Like really small amount. No, and but we want this huge big picture because that's how we are. We're nosy and curious <laughs> creatures. And um, but yeah, when I was reading your notes on that, I was like, oh my word, why have I never heard that? That makes so much sense. Really and does. doesn't bother me so much. <laughs> <laughs> I have a reason and it's really helpful, and that helps me. Yeah. yeah. And it kind of makes you I mean, I am under the impression on a lot of things, which recently people have told me they vehemently disagree with, but 
my, at least right now, and I'm sure I'll change one million times before I die, but my understanding of scripture now is like, there are things super literally we can understand. Like this tells us there will be a resurrection. That's what I need. Mm -hmm. to, that's what I need to get out of this. Do I know what yes. heaven will be like? I can read all of the books on heaven that are out there and all the commentaries and they're all going to say something different. Even the most, like, I don't think Piper and Grudem and MacArthur are all like the most conservative, well-trusted theologians in our modern era. They don't, they don't all agree on the resurrection or yes. happening or hell. And so I don't think that we need to know all of it. It just really isn't a huge part of it, it really isn't a part of salvation in that sense. Like, no. yes, that there will be resurrection and it will be perfect and we can understand God. My yeah. personal opinion as of now is that I don't think the garden was perfect. And I don't know if it will, you know, heaven will be just like it was before. But even like you said, even if it is, marriage and children were part of that before, before the fall. So it seems like yes. either... I don't know. I don't want to pretend like I'm, I can just understand what Jesus is saying. And it's either of these two things, but it seems like maybe Jesus is saying that there won't be marriage in the sense that we understand it or in the sense that his culture understood it or, mm -hmm. um, yeah, or maybe it will just be a, a totally, you know, it won't exist at all, or it'll be a totally new concept that we just don't have any understanding for right now. But yes, that, yeah. that does always make me, <laughs> Mason and I talk about that every time I'm just crying and I'm like, why did God do this? I want to be married to you. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not a fun conversation. <laughs> if you really love your spouse, you don't want to have that conversation um, and talk about it. Uh, we recently went through a study with our uh, Sunday school kids and it was, it's Heaven by Randy Alcorn. And um, one of the points he makes, his re reasoning for why his belief of why there wouldn't be a marriage in heaven is because um we're the bride of christ so we're all married to christ but as a human wrapping your mind around that sounds really stinking weird and david and i were like <laughs> mm. <laughs> he's like i don't really know how i'm gonna handle this with my kids <laughs> because something that like I mean obviously we have teenagers that we're working with on the whole they're not married so it's not like they're not getting it in the same way with, that we are but it's still one of those things where we're like I don't I, I can see why you're drawing that conclusion and I'm just going to accept that I have a finite brain that cannot understand all of this and I don't want to if that's the case at this time I know when I get to heaven I will love it it'll be fine it'll be great but from my humanly fleshly perspective, I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. But I can accept it. <laughs> Especially like for guys, I'm sure that because even just the whole analogy of like you're the bride of Christ and that whole thing for us, it's like I don't feel like it's as weird. I mean, it is pretty yes. weird when you start like thinking about it just for our brains, but I'm sure for men it's like, whoa, hey, my wife and I are both married to our savior. <laughs> That's really weird. Yeah. Not in that literal way, but like it's yeah, yes. the whole thing. Yes. A whole thing. Okay, I'll go through the next couple of these quickly because we're wrapping up and I want to just kind of review and say like, does this apply to us today? So uh, we just talked about children. So the New Testament, I'm just going to like jump through some things that it gives us mm -hmm. on marriage. So, so these are super fast. These are like within this context, people have so many things to say and a million sermons and books and contradictions that people have in their theologies and each other's theologies. So 
dig dig on your own and, and ask your pastor. <laughs> I'm not your mom or your pastor, so don't ask me. But uh, submission, we get submission from wives to husbands. Oh, there's different passages on headship, which I don't think I have on here, but search headship on Bible Gateway and it will pull everything up. And then also husbands and wives submitting to each other. So we see that in Ephesians 5.21 and verse 23, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3, 3 through 4. And then love your wives and respect your husbands, which was pretty countercultural to like Greco-Roman household codes that were pretty demeaning and pretty um, oriented towards subordinating women. Like you are definitely less than us. Thank the Lord I'm not a woman. And um, I can kind of treat you however I want and I don't need to be present and you take care of this. And, you know, I'm, I'm the final authority on every decision. And so that's pretty... There's a lot more there, but that's, um, we can see again where there's some weird things that seem out of context to us, which they are because our culture is so different. And yes. it's really in the interest of protecting the dignity of all people. And um, I, I don't know why I think of just like controversial things to bring up and then skip over, but <laughs> I think a really big conversation that a lot of people have had in the past couple of years is slavery and slavery in the New Testament. And again, I think we see this thing where it's like, this is the thing that God has not intended, but we mm -hmm. want to give you ways. If this is something that people are practicing, we want to give them ways to do it in a way that doesn't just follow the evil of culture and just say that people don't matter and you can treat them however you want. There's rules for how you treat another person, even if it's in this context that God doesn't ordain or permit. Yes. Um, which we also see with divorce, um, which I think we talked about that a little bit before, but um, there's some different references that we'll look at. First uh, Corinthians 7, 10 through 14, and then uh, along with that adultery, First Corinthians 7, 2, Hebrews 13, 4, don't get divorced, don't cheat on your spouse. And then a lot of the New Testament, I think, isn't just like instructions and commands like, hey, treat your wife this way, treat your husband this way, although we do see that a lot. But especially 1 Corinthians 7, it's not everyone's going to be married, which we haven't talked about yet today, but yes. it's not God's intention for everyone to be married, and that's okay, and that's good. Marriage is not for everyone, which is what Absolutely. Paul is saying here. But also, you should do whatever will help you serve the Lord best, and Paul specifies that if you're married, you're going to be thinking, if you're a good spouse, you're thinking about your husband and how to serve and please your husband or your wife. He specifically, <laughs> specifically references both, um, which also was, is impactful in that culture. And he makes yeah. the point to say your first priority is Jesus, but if you're married, then your second priority is your spouse. And so that's significant, serving the Lord the best. And so I think that gives us some context too, to say, should I get married to this person? Is marrying them in my best interest to serve the Lord the best? Not, not like in my best interest, like selfishly, but I mean, yes, thinking about that for yourself. And also, am I going to do what I believe the Lord has instructed me to do with my life better with this person and vice versa yes. for them? Am I going to help them serve the Lord in that way? Mm -hmm. And then um, just really quickly, 1 Corinthians 13, which is the whole love is, love is patient, it's kind, doesn't envy, it's not boastful, arrogant, not rude, self-seeking, isn't irritable, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Mm -hmm. um, this is verse six, love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. 
and then it gives more about um, love never ending. So even though that doesn't necessarily mean romantic love, that can be love for your neighbor, love for someone you don't have an intimate relationship with, that's, I mean, that gives a lot of the groundwork for marriage to, Absolutely. If, if Paul and the inspired word of God is saying, you have to love your spouse, that's, I mean, that's a lot right there, like not keeping a record of wrongs and putting them mm -hmm. before yourself. And um, even just like we're loving our neighbors as ourselves. And so what does that mean if we're, if we're conjoined with a person forever in body, soul, mind, and spirit and all those ways that marriage is laid out for us in scripture, then how much more would yeah. we do that to our spouse? Yes. So uh, hopefully this isn't like another hour long question, but the question kind of is, after we've looked at all of these things, what does that mean for marriage today? Like, should we apply those, all of those things to Christian marriage in 2022? What does that mean marriage should be about in our modern context? Um, does it have to just be like, we get married because we want to have children and take care of our family? Or I, I think I struggle with that because I've been really trying to look at this question, uh, and this is also like, I don't want to just make everyone in the universe mad, but I've heard some Christians say, and even Christians that I agree with on a lot of things, I've heard a lot of them say marriage, a big part of marriage is childbearing. And so if you are getting married, you should have the intention to have children. And that's, I don't know if I'm on that page right now. Like we're not, we're I'm with you. I get that. And so it's like, is that true? Is that true for everyone? And we, we know that God doesn't condemn barren people in the Old Testament. Like if you're not yes. able to have children, then that's not sinful to God. But it just means like, is there some kind of clause in there? Like if you're able to, then you should be doing this or what does that mean? Um, I think a lot of that opinion comes from the be fruitful and multiply um, before the fall. And I know a lot of people take that. I know people today who wholeheartedly believe that is still a command that we should be doing. And um, people have like 10 kids. If you want to have 10 kids, go for it. That's great. I'm happy for you. But for me personally, do I think that that's going to help me love the Lord the most and serve him in the best way that I can by having 10 children? Mm. Probably not, <laughs> if I'm completely honest. Um, that's a good perspective. And there's the other side of it, like we talked about earlier, that sex is not only for childbearing. And so a lot of people believe, okay, um, is it Paul that uh, says, like, it's good for you to get married if you, like, the temptation side of it? Mm -hmm. I can't remember. Yeah, I think okay. that's in first. So, so if we're saying, okay, yeah, Paul says we should get married if we um, are whatever, having these temptations, whatever it is, um, to this person. Again, like Carly said, mutual, all that. Um, but like we've talked about, or sex isn't just about childbearing. There is that pleasure side of it. And so for me, I don't see that that's the only reason you should get married is to have children. Um, I waited five, we waited five years. And even then our intent was never to have biological children and, and, um, I do have a biological daughter that, that is my daughter. And that was for, um, reasons we were just kind of had planned on adoption and foster care. And those things both fell through at a certain time. And so we were like, 
okay, we really want to have a kid still. So we'll, you know, do the biological child thing, which is not people's most, um, most people's train of thought in order of having children. Um, And so I, for a long time, I was pretty open with people when we first were married, like, I don't want to have kids right away. And when we do, I want to adopt. And there was not a lot of positive opinions on that. Mm. And I don't quite get it as a believer. We are adopted by God. So why is that um, something that would be discouraged? Um, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> um, you are adopted, obviously. Not obviously, but <laughs> <laughs> you are. <laughs> And whatever, even if your mom introduces me as her adopted dog. <laughs> but there's just, um, to me, I don't find the biblical foundation for that. If you get married, you're supposed to have children. Uh, biologically, I don't, I don't find that foundation in the Bible, um, especially based on the fact that, yes, there was barrenness and sex is more than just childbearing. It is pleasure that doesn't um hold weight if you ask me I don't know if all that makes sense (laughs) yeah I haven't heard any besides like the biblical mandate of Genesis for Mm -hmm. Adam and Eve I haven't really heard and and to be honest I haven't spent like significant significant time but I really haven't heard even an argument that I'd be like you know that's a really good one not to say there's that one out there just because I haven't heard it yes um but yeah I think that at least if that's your opinion, I think it's good to really look into that and see if there's a lot of, a lot of scripture to back that up. I've always been confused about the biblical adoption thing, not just because my family is, was made through adoption, but it's weird because Joseph adopted Jesus as his son. Like that wasn't his biological son. Moses, anyone? I don't know. There's a lot of adoption in the Bible. And so it's very, strange that that is uh condemned by some people we had we both had a teacher that was I remember him saying many times that adoption like it just shouldn't be an option if you can have kids and I've heard yeah a lot of really good really good arguments for you know there's a lot of kids who don't have homes and at least if we're not adopting them then let's let's work on creating some kind of system that takes care of them better and gives them a home rather than um, yes I don't know. There was, I can't remember her name. I should look it up really fast, but I just listened to, this is a little off topic, but I listened to a really good podcast um, with this woman who used to have an orphanage. I'm going to try to find it. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about how, oh, her name's Alicia Pinazzotto and it's nine uh, episode 957 on Theology in the Raw. And she was talking about how the orphanage system that she was running was actually really damaging because children really needed a family. Like she was saying, there was a lot of kids whose parents lived down the road, but they couldn't provide for them. And instead of just mm-hmm. taking their kids and, and she just like, she described it herself as it was kind of like a prison for kids, like the way that we had to do it because there were so many kids and they were just locked yeah. in the wall and they need family. And so it's like the best thing for us to do was to try to make their family stable or find them another home because they needed family. Like that's how God designed it. And so that's totally off topic of biblical marriage, but um, adoption, you know, I don't know. Yes. <laughs> Let me just drop a million controversies before we go. Um, yeah, I think that's a really good 
framework to build because a lot of the interviews that I have coming up with people are about polygamy or prostitution or um, uh, concubines and just crazy stuff that we don't usually talk about. So it's good to see like, what does it actually mean when it's supposed to be like a God honoring me? Now you have another one, adoption. Now adoption, there we go. Perfect. There we go. I feel like I want to just like, I mean, yeah, we sh I should tell David to come do a podcast, but I just want to ask him like a hundred questions because he's a pastor and just be like, tell me all of your thoughts on 100 topics because I just want to know. He would do it. <laughs> he would do it. He would love it because I am not someone who asks questions. I am not naturally a person to ask questions and he is, and he loves to answer questions. And I'm just like, uh-huh, uh-huh, I'm trying to smile, uh-huh, and I'm totally not interested. <laughs> and he can see it in my face. But I try really hard. <laughs> so and it's that. always like he has, I mean, he he has interest. He's a wonderful person who it gives me like so much of his time to just listening to me rant about things. But um usually he I, out of nowhere, it'll be like 11 30, and I'm like, you know, it always starts with, you know what's interesting? <laughs> like in Leviticus, and he's like, oh my gosh, I can't deal with you. But he's very kind and he'll do yes. well. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Well, thanks for talking with me about marriage. Yes. And thanks Fun. for giving me all your thoughts and opinions and your wisdom on all these topics. I hope that's what it is. <laughs> also, we're, we're just telling the world we're not experts. We've been married a short time. We're just nope. giving our thoughts, interpreting what we can out of the text. But read the Bible Absolutely. for yourself. It's not our not our uh we, we don't want to ever i always always say it a million times but the point of all of this is not to be like yep we figured out marriage for you and this is how it should be but just to say hey maybe there's some questions about this or if you disagree with everything we said then at least just open up your bible and see okay then what does god really say about these things what does god really say about marriage and what is the story that the bible tells us genesis to revelation about marriage and how you treat your spouse and respect others and if you're not going to get married then what does it mean for you as the bride of Christ? Whether you're a man or a woman, what does that look like for you as a single person? And that, if that's got intention for you, then that's the most wonderful thing for you. And that's what God has designed perfectly for you for your life. So anyways, there it is. <laughs> well, I will probably text you a million more times today. So I love Sounds you. Good Thanks to me. for coming on. Yes, love you too. Bye. Thank you.